You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Bill Black. Uh, Bill, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Arya. Yeah, I'm Bill Black. Um, I've been on Blogging Heads a few times before. Um, I'm a, a, a teach history at Western Kentucky University. I'm also an editor at uh, Contingent Magazine, which is a newish um, online history magazine. Most of the stuff we publish is by people who are not tenure track historians. So whether they're adjuncts or grad students or museum workers, or and we sort of publish on a variety of things. Basically, if it happened, it's the past, and we'll. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll link to that. And you, that is that it's Patreon supported, or it's um, do you need to be a patron to access it, or what? How, no, how... well, uh, we, we have a we have a few little odds and ends that are sort of bonus content if you donate. We don't use Patreon specifically, but if you just go if you go to contingentmagazine.org, there's our website, and you could see donate easily, or you can just go slash donate. And uh, I think. We use DonorBox, but anyway, if you sign up to to donate $3 a month, you get access to our – we have a little podcast we put out, and every now and then we'll put a little piece of extra thing. But other, we don't have a, a paywall or like, you know, you can read as many articles in a month as you want. Okay, cool. Uh, so people should check that out. Um, so we're going to be talking about some pieces that you've written uh, in the recent past, um, and the one that – I thought that was kind of funniest to me and that made me want to say, hey, let's, let's do another episode together, is this one he wrote about Tim Allen mm-hmm. and um, his kind of cultural moment in the mid-90s. Um, you, start, you start the piece by noting that there was a week in, in 1994 in which he simultaneously had the number one movie, the number one TV show, and the number one book uh, mm-hmm. in the country. And I guess, was it like 25 years later? Because this piece came out in December. Yes, yeah, because so it was the 25th anniversary of the San- of the Santa Claus. Yes, which um, um, not many people uh, marked or celebrated, but but you wrote a piece <laughs> in Mel, in, in Mel magazine, which we'll link to. So so first of all, why what what drew you to to the figure of Tim Allen and wanting to like yeah. read his book and stuff? And it's funny because honestly, I I was not a big watcher of Home Improvement, which you know was really when he came up in the zeitgeist. I didn't realize how big that show was because that was really a show I watched more um, the occasional rerun of. Yeah, I, was, I, I, was, I remember I remember watching it as a kid um, and it was one of the big, one of the big shows. I mean, there were, this is kind of an interesting sign out. There were a lot more family sitcoms in the 90s than there are today. And this actually is something I want to touch on because you have um, small children about, you know, what kind of like new entertainment you is, is there like an equivalent of this kind of stuff today but anyway mm. um yeah it was it was a big deal um for i don't know i guess in 1994 i was 11 and uh so that he had so tim allen on home room and had the character had three kids and they were all like in their early teens at the beginning and uh, jonathan taylor thomas was the middle middle child and he was kind of like um never like all the girls had a crush on him and uh, he, I mean, he was almost like, like a Justin Bieber equivalent. Not quite that big, but it was. I like, mean, I remember girls in. I would have been like in kindergarten, first grade, who were really big into him, 
Uh, and then, of course, he was, you know, did voice acting in The Lion King. Right. And it seemed like girls switched from him to Leonardo DiCaprio. So that was he, – he felt of a piece with that kind of uh, – uh, Yeah, he was know. kind of the, a prepubescent, um, you know, teen, yeah. teen Tiger Beat or whatever kind of heartthrob. And then, yeah, but I think that was a show on TGIF. I can't remember. Or maybe it wasn't. But it was it was just one of those very popular – I guess the most popular of those mid-90s family – like family sitcom, like where the kids learn a lesson, but there's still funny jokes for the parents. And well, it, it passed Roseanne just recently because uh, Roseanne had been the number one show in the country. Home Improvement passed it, and then for a couple of years they were sort of uh, um, at each other. And really, if you think of them, and uh, even I think of Married with Children as kind of the bizarro uh, version of that, and, and The Simpsons was part of that. You know, there were a lot of shows coming right. out of the, the The latter two are more kind of parodies of the genre of the family sitcom. Um, and, well, I mean, okay, so you get into more and then we can talk more about it. <laughs> because your, your piece actually is more about Santa Claus and also his book. Right. What, what, yeah, what is the book called? Don't Stand Too Close to a Naked Man? That's it. Yeah. Well, okay, because for me, the Santa Claus was a big thing because I would have been like six or seven when it came out. And I guess it was right at that age where it kind of crystallized for me as a big Christmas movie. Um, I think if I had been a little older, I probably wouldn't have like, oh, that's that's dumb. But I was, it, you know, it, it sort of slipped in under the door as, oh, this is canon as a as, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, a Christmas story or, or, or earlier films. So yeah. and. I just sort of noticed it was the 25th anniversary. And I was like, oh, that's kind of, it was just a movie that always kind of loomed large for me for some reason. Um, even just sort of weird, just kind of psychosexually loomed large for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, it, just a lot going on. I, I couldn't figure out what interested me about it. And then I just was, you know, re reading up on it and read about this week. Um, where he had the the biggest movie and the biggest book and the biggest show in the country. And I was just intrigued by the book. I hadn't heard of it. I started reading snippets and became r really quickly interested in the book. Um, because for one thing, you can tell that he actually wrote it. He didn't ghostwrite it. it it's not, it's not a... You know, often a book like that, the sort of comic memoir, would just basically be him talking to a ghostwriter and maybe patching together some stand-up routines. Mm -hmm. But you could tell he had actually invested some time in it and was actually trying to write a proper, you know, kind of humorist uh, nonfiction book. And that there are a lot of ideas in there about, you know, uh, masculinity and what it meant to be a man now, especially after all the social revolutions of the sixties and seventies. And so it, it just, I thought it'd be interesting to try and, you know, to go and actually read the book and then think about the movie, you know, through that lens. And that, that's what I pitched. Um, so I, I, I had heard of the book. I never read it. I, you know, I would have been too young at the time. Um, but I, the, the things you quote from it were surprising to me because I guess my, you know, my image of Tim Allen is home improvement in which he played 
the sitcom dad who, um, if people don't remember, he hosted this like local access, um, Bob Vila type home improvement show. The show was called home improvement. And so he knew all about tools. He's going to tell you how to fix all this stuff in your house, but he was always, um, and he, he, and he had this kind of like, you know, I'm like a caveman kind of thing. And, and this signature mm-hmm. thing was this kind of like bark or growl <laughs> that was like, arf, arf, arf. I don't, maybe this is from a standup or something, but he would do it on the show a lot. And I think it was a uh, part of a standup shtick. Yeah. And so that was like, when, you know, when he was picking up like the giant power drill or whatever, he would be like celebrating like his masculine moment. But then almost always he would screw it up somehow. And, and in ways that would like, um, normally injure or kill an actual person. And so the, <laughs> the, the one that actually, I guess it, it like, I, there's one particular instance of this that I remember still, um, it, because maybe it frightened me or something or seemed more something that I could do by accident. So it was like, he was, so he had this assistant, what was the assistant named Al? Um, who was like the one who actually knew how everything worked. And so Tim was like, Tim Taylor was saying, was saying, uh, if you have a broken light bulb, um, that, that broke in the socket, you can cut a potato in half and then stick, stick the potato on the light bulb and then twist it out that way. And then Al says to him, of course you have to check to make sure the, so he's like, he has like a lamp with a broken bulb on his, on his table. And you have to, Al says you have to make sure that it's not plugged in. And Tim is like, Oh, I'm I, I, I checked. It's not plugged in. And then he sticks the potato on and is immediately electrocuted. And there might've mm-hmm. even been that kind of special effect where like you see a skeleton for a second, like that kind of cartoonish <laughs> thing. And like maybe, at home or, alone. Yeah. Or maybe his ha- hair stands up or something. And, so something something about that like really like <laughs> imprinted on my ten or eleven year old memory, and yeah, so he was always so he was this guy who had this manly persona, and he like was supposed to know all this shit about tools, but he somehow always screwed it up and would like yeah do disastrous things and had to be bailed out by um by Al hit, <laughs> when he was on the show Al the like sidekick or when he was at home he had this neighbor Mr w- w- Wilson Mr Wilson. You never saw his full face of. He was always behind the fence, and you saw like the top of his head. And Wilson would offer him, like for his family dilemmas, he would offer him wisdom about like how to solve the problems of of the you know, the kids or the wife or or whatever. So he was always, you know. So this, I mean, the original sitcom like stereotype cliche of the father was like father knows best, and the dad is the wise person who's going to solve all the problems. And then mm-hmm. that eventually became. Uh, dad is a moron. Dad is Homer Simpson. He has no idea what he's doing. And, um, and so Tim is much more on the Homer Simpson side of things that, that, you know, dad, dad does it. Dad's an idiot, uh, but doesn't know it. Then, then, uh, you know, stuff from the, uh, fifties or sixties. So, so that was what I always thought of who he was. And then reading, reading how you described his, uh, this ideology that he wanted to propagate called, Meninism or mascul- masculinism? Masculinism, right? That, uh, that was very surprising to me. Okay, so so I've talked for a while. You, <laughs> why don't you take a shot? Well, it, and it's interesting because he talks about this about how men are often portrayed in on TV and movies as kind of buffoonish, which you know is a trope you often hear, especially from kind of uh, conservatives today. But then he says. But, you know, it's mostly men who are producing those shows. So he he doesn't like tr- – actually, he doesn't take that trope and then somehow blame it on feminism or blame it on women. He, he says this is sort of an, uh, uh, 
an idea about men that men like to spread about themselves, which I don't know was an interesting. He and he talks also about the ideal of masculinity presented back in the fifties in shows shows like Leave It to Be the Bird and Bother Knows Best, and he just sort of says that that he's realistic that that's not a time that can be returned to or and that we maybe don't even necessarily want to return to. Um, you know, he talks about how he uh, took classes on feminism in college and and uh, tried to be a good platonic friend to his women friends. And, uh, you know, there's very much a, a kind of a liberal boomer sensitivity there where he doesn't want to turn back the clock. Um, so it's not necessarily this reactionary impulse, but he still thinks that men – feel kind of adrift. They're not sure what the new sort of synthesis for men should be. And so he proposes something that he calls masculinism as a kind of rival, not a rival, but a complementary ideology to feminism. He's like, it's, he's, he's all on board that women should have their feminism. He just thinks men should have their masculinism. He's drawing on, and he says explicitly the kind of men's uh, uh, movement of the 70s and 80s, people like Robert Bly. I don't know if that was something you're familiar with. Yeah, just more from just its seepage into pop culture of this, like, comical image of, like, men, like, with their shirts off, like, with war paint on them, or, you know, like, sitting <laughs> in a circle around a fire and, like, banging drums and stuff. And he and he jokes about that, uh, but still thinks that there's some truth to it and that men should should have spaces in which they could be men, you know, sort of the kind of man cave uh, uh, cliche or, or the, you know, he, he regrets that spaces like, uh, you know, country clubs and, and, uh, golf courses are being increasingly, uh, gender mixed. And he thinks that there should be spaces for men as there are for women. And he also, uh, thinks that men and women have these different energies that they should embrace and celebrate, uh, without, Without a, without there being necessarily competition, so and he's he draws explicitly here on Camille. Uh, how do you actually say her last name? Paglia. Paglia? You know, I honestly have no idea if it's Paglia or Paglia. Um, and I, the, the, yes. the Harold Bloom uh, disciple, uh, whose book Sexual Persona was a actually a big hit um, when it came out in ninety, in the early nineties, and and uh, you know it. Is this sort of Jungian, um, uh, you know, idea? You know, she, she talks about how there's the Apollonian energy and the Dionysian uh, energy, the more uh, male versus the more female, sort of sky god and earth god, and yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of rehashed Jung stuff that Jordan Peterson espouses now. And you see Tim Allen talking about it in the book, and even when he was promoting it, there's this. You can find this interview he does with Charlie Charlie Rose, where he talks at length uh, about about the book. So it, you know, the, definitely had a, an impact on him. Um. So, so I mean, I, I it seems like from the article you write somewhat admiringly of masculinism, or at least you're not. 
uh, running a takedown or something. What is, mm-hmm. I mean, do you like 25 years later, obviously this movement hasn't taken off. Um, but are there things, are there things there that you think we should, uh, you know, look back to from, from the wisdom of, of Tim Allen? I mean, I do think there, there's something, actually there's a ContraPoints video recently that made similar, a similar argument. I'm trying to think, I think it might just be titled men mm-hmm. or um and, and 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 but and she makes the argument that there should be some sort of men's movement where m- men are talking to men about you know that, in other words it doesn't just need to be men being allies to feminism or listening to feminists but they actually should be having their own conversations with each other um so often though those conversations sort of descend in the, into the kind of alt-right, uh, you know, red pill uh, nonsense that's out there. And so, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't – I agree I, I agree with the – I agree that it is a, a problem that should be taken seriously in this sort of um, – kind of drift driftless aimlessness that many men feel and this is not you know i mean this is something that's been on magazine covers for decades now but it i think it's too easy to just dismiss it with jokes um and say well you know men men are are doing fine and they're you know and i i think that leaves a vacuum in which dangerous ideas can be put in there Mm -hmm. um you know i don't know how much i buy the kind of union uh stuff it but uh it is it is compelling to be, i i guess i guess the union stuff seems to me the kind of i don't know just feels very undergrad dorm room talk to me like i, I don't find it particularly interesting or revealing uh-huh. you know um it's that it's that sort of excitement that people first get when they first start you know, reading seriously, like, oh, here's this nice little binary that can fit everything into, and there's a pleasure that you get out of fitting everything into that binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every term paper you write just repeats that, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Um, well, so there's a perfect segue here, uh, such as uh, chaos and order. But, mm-hmm. I, but there is one other thing I want to – we will – I will reuse that segue in a minute. So, uh, so not to get too political here, but, um, you know, part of, okay. So I guess, yeah, I think Alan, even though, so he's a, so he said he's a Republican, but you call him a liberal boomer. Um, do you think he voted for Trump? Has he said anything about, about Trump? I think he did. Well, cause of course, he's, he's one of these California Republican types, right? Who's sort of, knows that their presidential vote doesn't much matter. I know he supported Ted Kasich in the primary. John Kasich. Or, yeah. Yeah, John Kasich. Uh-huh. Not, not, not the uh, hybrid monster. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, he certainly hasn't been outspokenly uh, anti-Trump. Uh-huh. And now he's in this new show. I don't know if you've watched it. Called no, Last Man Standing. And there he is... A, the whole shtick is that he's a conservative dad and his daughters, I think, are more liberal and he's kind of an Archie Bunker type. 
Um, though I think, as with all in the family, it's the it's the sort of figure it's the sort of liberals' idea of a conservative where where they will tiptoe against you know tiptoe into bigotry, but then you know when there's a real person that they're faced with, they always do the good liberal thing, right? You know, there always be that <laughs> moment where Archie Bunker does the the not heel turn, the opposite of that. What's that? Is that a face turn? I guess. I guess, yeah. Where you know he'll be op- you know open welcoming or you know. Uh, say, oh, we shouldn't do the blackface show. And I, my impression <laughs> is that I do similar things to the Tim Allen character. Uh-huh. So, so I don't think he's necessarily portrayed as a as a MAGA uh, guy. Because, uh-huh. you know, I, I'm sure also, you know, he's probably not particularly interested in creating a I – mean, he, he doesn't need to do – he doesn't need to do the right-wing grift, right? I mean, he's got all that – Home improvement money, all that Toy Story money. He doesn't have to. <laughs> right, I totally forgot that. Yeah, so he's he's the voice of Buzz Lightyear, and hopefully he gets some. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we're going to yeah. get some residuals from that or whatever. For I'm sure. For and there's a new, the new movie out, so you know he's not going to be. He's, he's kinda, did you see the new movie, the Toy Story Four? I have not. That's I have not. Had... He uh, Buzz Lightyear is kind of sidelined. Um, yeah. it, it's really more about Woody. Um, oh. So take that for <laughs> what it's worth. Um, I guess so. The last thing I'll say on this before we do segue is like, you know. When Trump says "Make America Great Again" and people get into it, what are they thinking of? I've been, you know, I don't know exactly. Maybe they don't know exactly either. So vague, but I th- what I think is they're thinking about a 1950s sitcom version of America. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to get back to. They don't want to get back to the actual 1950s. You know, many of them weren't born in the. I mean, the, you know, <laughs> the 1950s started 70 years ago. Many of them weren't born then. Um, but they want they want that sense of leave it to beaver, you know, that like cultural myth of the wise, benevolent, stern father who was just going to make things right. And, and then maybe obviously there's a racial aspect to, to this as well, because all this all those shows only featured white people. Um, but so thinking, I mean, I mean, I, you know, Trump seems to care more about TV than he cares about reality. Um and yeah, just that that cliche or trope of what life was like in the nineteen fifties before you know all the hippies and mm-hmm. black people and women started uh, ruining everything for us. Um, that that seems to be what "Make America Great Again" is, and it's it's tied up in t- televised fantasy about you know benevolent fathers. Yeah, and I think. Uh... I think sometimes people uh, will underestimate how important – I mean cause a, a lot of people, especially people who aren't on Twitter all the time, are watching television all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people, people say, you know, who are in my kind of, you know, college-educated, grad school-educated world, and they'll say, who even watches TV anymore? And it's like millions of people watch just <laughs> network television for hours on end from when, when they get home to when they go to bed. And – and th- that the power of being on television and shaping narratives means a lot so that you can have that sense of, oh, the liberals are, are running everything, even when the Republican Party is dominating, you know, all three branches of government. And well, but when you're spending a, a quarter, a third of, of your life <laughs> watching TV, that is, you know, uh, 
where we're, you know, uh, the kind of California and New York liberals do have an outsized power, then yeah, that does mean something to you. And it will be TV fantasies that you'll draw on for your sense of, you know, how life should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, an interesting thing is, is that in Tim Allen's book, he talks a lot about how he was an Eddie Haskell. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that character. From oh, yeah. The, the, Eddie Haskell was the uh, suck up uh, who always was complimenting um, the parents, the mother particularly, right? I'll leave it to Beaver. Mm-hmm. But he was like a, he was like a nasty kid in real life. But he was always right. like, you look beautiful today, Mrs. Cleaver. All the grownups loved him, even while he was, you know, committing all sorts of mischief. And he says he was an Eddie Haskell type as a kid. And that even he's, he says that never really ended. He, he was always <laughs> he was always Eddie Haskell and always had this, um, which almost becomes a kind of Jungian or like the two wolves inside or I don't know, some kind of thing of, that there's this. So it, I would say it's it's an interesting <laughs> book to read in that he doesn't fully buy into that fantasy and says if you, even in that show, there's this kind of darkness um, of of the the person who has this facade of of being one thing when they're actually another. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a weirdly dark look at things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I assume you can buy this book on Amazon used for one penny. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, it's it, very so if, easy. If anyone wants to check it out, uh, <laughs> look at look into Tim Allen's book. Uh, Don't stand too close to a. Um, Naked man, and you. Okay, wait, let's move on. But you did, you talk more about Santa, the Santa Claus and the plot of the Santa Claus, and the, you know the dad who's divorced and all this, all all this stuff in that. But let, let's let's move on. Also, okay, I'm re, I'm re, recalling my um, my brilliant segue, which is that uh, you know the people who split thing, <laughs> a famous person who sees everything split into a binary is uh, Jordan Peterson, a Canadian mm-hmm. psychologist and all around go- life guru. Um, and he sees the world split into order and chaos and says, you need both of them, um, to have a happy life. And, uh, and so, and things flow from this, uh, order is, uh, he identifies with the masculine chaos with the feminine. Uh, so you, you wrote a piece, um, last year that was about how Christian, how Christians are, um, taking Peterson and especially the kind of you know, he has his audience seems to be predominantly younger and male, and these are the these are the people who have stopped going to church, and um, yeah. So, so what what how did you uh, like come up with this idea to write about this? Well, I I think I noticed every now and then on Facebook that people I'm friends with they were like. Maybe you know, like I, I went to college with. I went to a Christian college in in rural Tennessee, and you know, people who've gone on to be like youth pastors or chaplains and stuff like that. And I noticed that for the past few years, that, that there was a kind of a public grappling with Jordan Peterson, not knowing what to do with them, because they would sort of say, "Well, there's a lot of his ideas that we like. You know, we like the things that he's saying to men." And we like that he takes God seriously, that he takes, you know, Christianity seriously. I mean, so much of Jordan Peterson's actual YouTube lectures are about the Bible. And, you know, uh, though they sometimes get tired, the, the kind of uh, Christian leaders I'm looking at here sometimes get tired of, of 
Peterson's way of talking about the Bible because it is this just this just relentless Jungian analysis. You know, he, he's he was not a, a seminary student. He doesn't seem to know that actual much about you know Old Testament or New Testament scholarship. He's just sort of treating you know these texts as just one text among many that he can do his old tricks with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they like that he gets people thinking about the Bible at all uh, seriously. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a men only make up today 39% of churchgoers in the United States, and that's uh, uh, declined to this day. And you know, at smaller churches, it might be even less. And so they're like, well, what is it that he has that the church isn't giving them? Um, so there's a, an appeal there, but there's still kind of uncomfortable with him. They think he might be a heretic because um, he'll say that he believes that Christ rose from the dead, but then he will kind of s- say that he doesn't necessarily mean that literally, but but he, he does think it's it, it's true that it happened, but not necessarily literally true. And, and, uh, and sometimes this will frustrate his Christian fans. Uh, they'll accuse him of just sort of being kind of gobbledy, gooky, wishy-washy with what they think are the, you know, really important truth cl- claims of Christianity. So I was just interested in that grappling of how they, um, you know, deal with them. The main thing that I that I found from it was there was – that there's a, a fear among many Christians that the church has gotten um, basically too, quote-unquote, feminine, too um, – basically they're buying into Peterson's union analysis that there's this kind of, you know, uh, feminine chaos energy and this masculine order energy. And they think that the church by emphasizing God's grace and how, you know, uh, uh, our sins can be forgiven and, you know, we should love one another and all that stuff that all that is all true but if it's emphasized at the expense of talking about God's judgment, about how, you know, we are sinners and sin is wrong and we should, you know, stop sinning and, you know, it, then we end up with the church that has too much of the feminine energy and not enough of the masculine energy. And so then men will become less and less interested in going to church because, you know, they'll feel like, well, you know, this isn't really speaking to me. Um I, I had someone I talked to for this piece talked about how, you know, when he was a pastor, pastors at churches that male attendants would would shoot up when there would be like some big project that they're working on, like, you know, building maintenance or, um, you know, something where a lot of the men were being asked to do things with their hands. And so he, you know. He thought Peterson was on to something that, you know, that if you have an imbalance that you can have a a sort of of despair, rootlessness, and alienation come out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I forgot to note, I'm wearing my my lobster print Uh uh, shirt right now in honor honor of Jordan Peterson. and for people who don't know, he he's identified with lobsters for this strange comment he made about how even lobsters have like hierarchy in their 
Lobster Society or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I'm sure everything we say about Jordan Peterson, people in the comments, especially on YouTube, will tell us that we are wrong. We don't understand him and we need to watch his videos, um, which I will not do. So, yeah, I, I think it's it, – I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, like Peterson's – you know, Peterson's caginess – about his belief is interesting. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's actually kind of admirable. Like if he wanted to like move into the Christian sector or something and just say, like declare, you know, like that he was born again or something, then mm-hmm. that would be like, he would be set for life essentially of tor- touring churches and, you know, and just working that world. Um, but he, so it's clear he, do- he is not exactly that, and when you quote him saying something like, so he was asked, you know, was Jesus resurrected? And he says something like, it depends what you mean by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so this is not like, this is not like Southern Baptist understanding, I assume. Um, no. So, yeah, so he obviously like he has his he has his beliefs and um, which makes sense because it's not like he was some guy who, um, you know, uh, like his his idiosyncratic beliefs like were just and his lectures and stuff were uploaded to YouTube and spread organically. It's not like he like tailored them to, for the mass audience. Like it's just, he right. has these unusual beliefs that chimed with a certain percentage of the population. Um, so yeah, so he, he's, he's sticking to that, which I, I, uh, I think is going to more or less. Well, he, he seems genuinely sort of, there's this interview he did with a, a Roman Catholic bishop, Bishop Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N. And it's really in, intriguing because Jordan Peterson's like kind of crying and uh, and not just like a single tear, but sort of, um, you know, like almost ugly crying, but in a, in a, in a more restrained way. I don't know. Like the, it's, you know, we're not talking about mascara running, but weeping, I would say. Um uh, that he, that he's afraid that Christianity's claims might be true, and he like he doesn't want to say he's a Christian if he re- doesn't really mean it. Almost like he's afraid that that God would strike him dead for being dishonest. So he seems to have he, he, he's definitely uh, uh, haunted yeah, uh, I mean, I, he's, by, by the Christian God. He seems to be a tortured soul, kind of mm-hmm. like especially. It's unclear exactly. Maybe people know exactly what's happening to him over the past year or so, but it seems like he either is having serious health or mental health problems that like cause him to withdraw from, you know, the the public eye. Um, Surely not related to his his diet. His diet of of only like steak and salt and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. So obviously he's he's a strange person. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, like he. I mean, he's almost like like a modern analog for like a character of Dostoevsky or something. It's like, he's, he's like wrestling, you know, he's like taking on these like profound questions is like wrestling with them and is, you know, like suffering and, and uh, like body, <laughs> mind, body and soul. Yeah. No, he's, I, I, I find him someone that's, I, I think he's an honest person. I, I, I don't, I've never really thought it was fair to lump him in with the sort of Ben Shapiro or, or Dave Rubin types. Um, uh, I know you've compared him to uh, uh, the Peter Sellers character in being there, which I think is uh, a good way to put it. I, uh, 
Yeah, he's just he's he's an odd duck, no doubt. And <laughs> it, it's uh his his a and his appeal to Christians is interesting. I mean, for one thing, it's interesting to me in that it's really not a new phenomenon for there to be this anxiety within uh, churches that they've become too feminized. Mm-hmm. This is something you've seen at least for several hundred years. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a time, honestly, when Christian churches haven't been disproportionately uh, female membership. Uh-huh. Um, this is something you've you've seen. I mean, you know, the New Testament churches it was it was a lot of you know widows and and uh, um, prostitutes and you know uh, uh, you know it was disproportionately marginalized people and women were disproportionately among the marginalized. Uh-huh. Uh, and you see. You know, early 20th century anxiety about, oh, you know, dad's staying home or, you know, goes fishing or whatever while mom takes the kids to church. And um, so I, I think that anxiety is uh, a pretty normal one. Um, and so P- Peterson is the latest thing that is being turned to, the, oh, what is it that we can – you know, pick up from him so that we can get uh, men in the doors, which uh, I guess partly, I, I think partly that anxiety, I didn't, I didn't even think about this honestly until just now. I think partly that anxiety has, is financial because um, uh, the, the idea is that maybe if you get more men, that they will often have more controls of the, of the purse strings and you can get more tithing dollars out of them. I'm oh. not sure exactly what the materialist explanation there is, but it, it does almost seem like Peterson's moment may be passing. seems like people are, are starting to talk about him less or maybe it's just that the democratic primary is, uh, uh sopping up some, so much of people's attention. Yeah. I think I, 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 um, noticed this too, six or so months ago. It was like, remember when we were all so freaked out about Jordan Peterson? Like, I think he just got too much attention for, for, reasons I would have to think more about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, he had, he got more attention than he deserved. And then there was kind of a, you know, he went back into semi obscurity, but possibly, but this like whatever personal health or whatever problems he's having probably contributed to that. So he's not like making new videos or going yeah. on, on interview shows to, to give the, the Jordan Peterson perspective. But you know, the, um, you know the, the the originator doesn't need to stick around for the disciples to spread the faith, um, and I think if anything, he's 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 certainly repopularized union ideas of the kind of feminine masculine energies, and I think that's something that, um, you know, I mean, he may end up being the greatest, you know, popularizer of of Jung since Jung. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, those ideas are, are much more in the mainstream. Though it it is just it's like how different is it really from men are, men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of uh, shtick? I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, and I'll never know because I refuse to learn more uh, <laughs> about Jordan Peterson. So let's uh, so let's move on to our next topic, which is um, you wrote a piece. So this is we, we have to throw ourselves back into the uh, was it August when this bubbled up or I guess it, uh, the whole summer people were talking about this, this uh, crazy idea that um, a, a bunch of people would gather in the desert 
uh, near Area 51, and thus they all ran <laughs> at Area 51 at the same time. The uh, soldiers there couldn't kill everyone, and so some people would survive and manage to break in and free the aliens who were there. Um, right. So I think it started with basically just a jo- it was just like a, a random person's joke tweet or something that somehow it was a what, Facebook what... event page. Someone okay. created. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, why don't you why don't you take over because you know more about it? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it was in June, and it, it was it was called Storm Area Fifty One. They can't stop all of us, and I forget by the end, at least two million people had said that they were uh, going to going to do it, and I guess several million more probably said that they might you know go as you can respond to on a Facebook event page. Mm-hmm. I think I think in the end, like a hundred people showed up. <laughs> uh, part. I, Part of the problem is that, uh, like, you can't. It's not easy to get there. <laughs> it's not easy to get there. Uh, it's a very large space. It's not even clear what it would really mean. Like, there's not just like, you know, the building. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and the. I mean, if it's, if it's an air force base, it's probably roughly equivalent to like an airport, you know, in, in size and those runways and stuff. So yeah, you can't just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like it's essentially like almost like a national park or something. I mean, you know, it's just like a huge. Um, and yeah, I mean, what you get within several several miles of it, and and uh, uh, you know, in, uh, military police cars will emerge from the sand from the desert um, and stop you. So yeah, it didn't go very far. I think uh, uh, there was some. YouTubers, maybe from the Netherlands, they were there from Europe, who were arrested uh, for urinating in public. That was the only, that was the closest uh, thing that happened that came to to, a, to an altercation. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it would just, you know, this would be like, as envisioned, it would be like some sort of, you know, m- like mass migration. And like, where would all these people go to the bathroom? You know, you mm-hmm. need porta potties or something. <laughs> and I assume no one secured porta potties. So where else, what else are people going to do besides go to the bathroom in public so i right. don't know the uh but i was interested in it and and honestly and even though you know that kind of that meme kind of died down you, you basically since the, the 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 reporting that's come out of the washington post and the new york times about how the government is treating ufos seriously um that there's been this steady discourse among among the, the kids these days about about not being afraid of the extraterrestrials, but rather kind of seeing them as possible allies or saviors, and you know it was just interesting. Like I, I when I th- compare the role that Area 51 played in this meme, right, where it's like a prison that the, where these aliens were being kept, and that the kids were going to go and free the aliens and take them home and their tweets about taking everyone would take their own alien home and smoke weed with them and <laughs> right. you know microwave you know raviolis or whatever for them or something like that <laughs> um, which, which maybe indicates that the type of person who was sharing these memes if, if the, they have an alien <laughs> and the thing they want to do is smoke weed and make microwave ravioli right and you compare that to you know the the, in Independence Day, the 1996 movie, where Area 51 is where the big bad alien is, the aliens are being kept, and uh, the aliens are not someone that we want to take home and you know smoke weed with. They're big scary creatures that are trying to kill us all. And, mm-hmm. and Area 51, 
I even think there's a moment when Bill Pullman playing the president is brought in and he's like, why wasn't I told about this? And they're like, he's just told, you know, the plausible deniability. That's right. Yeah. I just, I just, just for the record, the, the guy who says that line, James Rebhorn, um, he lived in, in the town I, I grew up in and I uh, went to school with his oh, daughter man. and I saw him one time in the parking lot of the train station. And I was like, I, I was just kind of like dazedly smiling at him and he just gave me a friendly smile and <laughs> kept on walking. Uh, but he, <laughs> he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a great character actor anyway. Yeah. So, but, and it's just sort of the government is the good guys and Air 51 is where there's nice scientists who are trying to help save the world. And you have Brent Spiner is the main scientist and and just that whole script has been flipped, um, which, you know, there's a longer history here um, where you have kind of two different traditions in which aliens are are understood there's the one that sort of bubbles out of the invasion novel subgenre that became popular in the late 19th century, uh-huh. um, where it was really kind of really becomes popular after Germany or not Germany, uh, Prussia wins the the war against France in the 1870s, and Germany is well, no, I guess oh well I'm getting my 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 dates mixed up here, but basically Germany was becoming ascendant economic and military power and sort of disrupting the, the the balance of power in Europe. And so you had novels written in the late 19th, early 20th century about, oh, you know, imagining in 1920 Germany invading England and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. everyone being made to speak German. And War of the Worlds was written by H.G. Wells in that vein. Uh, like, oh, there's this genre, let's imagine if instead of Germans, like everyone's afraid of, if we're aliens. And right. So that whole thing is morphed into the sort of modern extraterrestrial invasion narrative. But then you also have this narrative of like the Space Brothers. Um, there was the guy, what's it, George Van Tassel, who was a big uh, claim to have spoken with these extraterrestrials and I think he was around in like the fifties and sixties and he described this extraterrestrials as these sort of almost Aryan uh, uh, people who created us and uh, were going to, you know, uh, help us and give us, you know, uh, advanced technology. And, and you had a guy named Jay Posadas P-O-S-A-D-A-S, who was this obscure Argentine Trotskyist in the 60s and 70s. And he uh, gave this paper talking about how um, extraterrestrials must surely be socialists mm-hmm, or right. communists because if they had gotten to the point where they're capable of intergalactic space travel, then that meant, to what, as we would put it now, like they had passed through the so-called Great Filter they must be. I think Bob Wright has espoused this idea. Yeah, um, yeah, he, he has. You know, any any society that is capable of interplanetary travel must have overcome the like petty tribal differences between different nations and united had like a global government to enable this to happen. So that means they've like evolved morally past the level that that we're at now. Right. I, I, I think that'd be the rough version of it. Yeah, and and. Passadism, as it's called, has become recently popular, at least among the very online left, <laughs> uh-huh. at least ironically. Um, but and it's just interesting that, that we've seen in the last couple of years that that strain of 
of uh, how we understand extraterrestrials has become more popular. Um, and that, uh, the, well, you know, the government is hiding this stuff because they don't want us to get access to the ideas and the technology that the aliens want to give us to, to liberate us. Um, and so I, I just think, you know, I, my explanation for this isn't, isn't probably that surprising. It's just, I think this just reflects how uh, at least younger people are feeling kind of uh, more alienated, um, kind of left out of the American dream, you know, kind of screwed over by the recession and, and never really allowed to uh, enter the, I, I think it's been said that like, unlike the baby boomers, the, the, the millennials or maybe even more so the Gen Zs aren't, like, aren't going to be allowed to sell out. Um, like they won't be in an economic position where they can abandon their earlier radicalism and settle down to a nice job and, huh. you know, two kids in the white fence because like, oh, there, there's there's no, you know, they might sell out if they could. But if that option isn't given to them, then they just stay Um which ironically I think might be an overly optimistic uh, uh, prediction from some. <laughs> I'll have to think about that one some more. I mean, one, you know, it's like, uh, it's also that the the kids these days, you know, are like creating their own stuff and building their own brand from like age 12. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's not like they are like, I, I don't know. It's, it's like they're a little corporation unto themselves to begin with. Like these people you see, like makeup influencers and stuff like this. You know, they have like they have their their own thing from the beginning. I don't know. And then they're like mm. they're like selling T-shirts from the, for their with their catchphrases. You know, from, from the beginning also. So I, I I don't know. I'll have to think about that one some more. You know, something this occurred to me. I wonder if part of what's going on is is maybe when the great fear, the great kind of. Uh, eschatological fear was that we were going to blow ourselves up, that like nuclear war is going to be the end of us. Maybe it makes more sense than to think of extraterrestrials as um, sort of that to the nth degree. Um, so they sort of stand in for the Soviets or the, you know, the stand in for some other nuclear power. And, and now that climate change is kind of has, I think supplanted nuclear war as a source of that fear. And, maybe is seen as more self um how to put it a self-inflicted wound like uh-huh. it's not the soviets were afraid of it's just oh our dumb greed and, and and it's like a it's it's an inaction that we're afraid of rather than someone rashly pushing a button it's our kind of inaction our inability to evolve maybe it makes sense that in that scenario People start to look towards, in a kind of a religious sense, uh, look towards these more advanced beings uh, for hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't mean, think it's going away. You know, in like the the alien uh, like in the alien attacks movies, the question is always like, what? Um, why are the aliens attacking? Um, mm-hmm. Usually, it's uh, you know they want our precious mineral resources or something. There's something in the earth that they. Uh, they want. I don't think in, in Independence Day, which I guess is the iconic alien movie of the past thirty years, I don't think it's ever specified why the aliens are attacking us. Oh, maybe one of the sequels or something. It, it lays it out. Oh no, there's. It's in Area Fifty One. I think some alien like somehow communicates to Bill Pullman. 
and like reveals to him. It, but it is some sort of they harvest us or they harvest the planet for everything it's worth. Then they milk it dry and then they move on to some other planet. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, there's a sense in which that is kind of projecting our own yeah that's that's a human history of colonization yeah what we've done to the to the planet itself is that we're you know sucking it dry and 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 leave it you know we're gonna leave a husk but i guess we have nowhere else to go where's the aliens gonna head back to uh home base um yeah well let me see why don't we okay why don't we move to the the last one we want to talk about because we're getting close to the hour which is a piece okay a piece you wrote about uh about y'all uh the word y'all and uh, uh, stuff, similar things were uh, to this were dis- has been discussed on the Blogiest platform. Uh, Phoebe Malsbovi and Kat Rosenfield in Feminine Chaos, they did an episode talking about you guys and this idea whether it's offensive to say to women, you guys, or, or not. And so, and if you do believe that it's offensive to say to like a mixed gender group, you, hey, you guys, then... Um, you know what? What are we left? What else can you say? And one of the one of the things is y'all, and mm-hmm. but y'all has its own problems. Uh, so so tell us. Uh, so listen up, y'all, and uh, <laughs> and Bill's gonna drop some knowledge about y'all. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was just, and this is something I'd noticed on Twitter was that people who I was like, I'm pretty sure never, like weren't Southern, um, but just white Northerners, especially people in their twenties or younger were saying y'all and I became curious of why that was. I was curious if they actually said it in real life or if they just said it on Twitter. And so, so far as I can make it out, I, I think it's a case in which y'all is creeping into how white Northern kids talk via African-American English, which, you know, certainly something we've seen happen many times, mm-hmm. a f- familiar story. Language often travels up the sort of socioeconomic status ladder mm-hmm. um, from those who are more marginalized to, to those who are, who are less. That's that's actually usually how it goes. Um, and also, I think language change usually happens among young women first, um, and then men start talking that way, so that now men and women pretty much equally uh, use vocal fry and upspeak and these things that are often coded feminine, but just yeah. because... Anyway, but... So I think that's how it happened. Uh, African-Americans basically brought Southern English to the North. Um, and because unlike white Southerners, you know, it was harder for them to kind of assimilate into mainstream society. And so, um, you know, the grandfather, you know, the grandchild of an African-American who might have moved from Alabama to Michigan or New York is more likely to talk like a Southerner than if if their you know grandparents were white and had you know migrated from Alabama. Um, you know, if you think of all the kids of Okies in California, they don't talk like the Okies anyway. So I think that's how it happened, and I think it. I think tw- Twitter and social media kind of exacerbates that process or accelerates it because words. As you're kind of scrolling through, they, they all they all sort of feel like words that belong to you. Uh, um, uh, all they all feel like words you can say, and so I, I do think it's a case where people are typing it out, uh, and then it's seeping from that into how people actually speak, which 
we're seeing it happen with you know people saying IRL, mm-hmm. IRL, right, uh, or OMG, uh, or, or yeah, right, and are, are people using weird abbreviations, an abbrevi- like ab- abbreviations that don't actually shorten things that much in speech, but they make sense typed out, but then you kind of playfully use them in real speech as well. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think that's starting to happen with y'all, but it it does lead to this question of oh, is it cultural appropriation? But it does create this problem, and you'll see every couple of weeks some debate uh, among leftists and progressives about whether or not it's okay to say y'all. Is that appropriating Southern culture or African American culture? Um, but you know, if, you, if you're not allowed to say y'all, then should you, should you say you guys? Is that offensive to women? Is that offensive to non-binary or trans people? Is that misgendering people? And it doesn't seem to be an easy way out. I sort of suspect y'all is going to become increasingly popular. I think, uh, I think, particularly among people like ten years younger than me, so like high schoolers, I think you're seeing them increasingly say y'all, especially on the West Coast. Just anecdotally talking to people, mm-hmm. and I think you guys is falling out of of favor. Um, I don't have, um, I don't really make any moral judgments about this. I <laughs> I sort of see language as just you know, I guys can totally change to to not have a specifically masculine meaning, just like it used to just mean used to mean a particular effigy of guy fox and then it came to mean really is that what, is that, that's where it comes yeah. from that's funny yeah it was like oh there's the guy that you would burn on guy fox day and then just sort of morphs into you know a man oh, i can't you can just morph into a human as well but right. you know i uh and all this comes from the fact that we don't have a, a nice specific second person plural uh, which you used to be, um, used to be thou was the first person and you was the second mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or no, uh, thou was the first, was the second person singular and you as a second person plural. And then you morphed to mean second person plural and also second person singular kind of formal, like, oh, you're, you are so, you know. I respect you so much that I'm kind of going to address you as if you're multiple people, sort of like the royal we. Mm-hmm. And you'd use thou for someone who's just your equal or your inferior, but then because of that, you will you will tend to keep to address more the sphere of people whom you will address with the formal you will grow and grow because it gets to be the connotation of if you say thou, are you insulting that person by saying that they're not? worthy of you and so you ended up just crowding out thou altogether mm-hmm. and just meaning any second person and now we think of thou as being kind of fancy and formal sounding when actually it was the kind of casual loosey-goosey word anyway <laughs> so that yeah that's if i ever knew knew that i forgot about that uh, I sh- because i feel like i would have learned that when i was reading shakespeare and, and you know well, Shakespeare, something. shakespeare and the time of Shakespeare is when that shift was really kind of finalizing. And so you'll have people talking and they'll switch from thou to you. And it's meant to sort of signal that the mood has changed and like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, or, the, 
or, or they'll switch from you to thou and they'll sort of be like, oh, I, I was viewed you with a certain respect and now I don't. Um, so people were playing with it, you know, in the in the Elizabethan era still. Mm-hmm. But and that's why like the King James Bible was consciously using thou to refer to God because God was intimate um, was someone that you were close to. It was not meant to mean, oh, thou you know, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, huh. you, you wouldn't say thou to a king. You would say you to a king. Mm-hmm. Um, thou would be your bud, um, and that, that's why thou is the analog, the cognate to, you know, like do in German or uh, uh, I forget what it is in Spanish. But anyway, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing, and people are just going to be fighting over it probably until. A generation passes and all this kind of comes out on the wash. I think, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think it's going to be something that's solved. It's just going to organically change, no matter what people think is the quote-unquote right thing to say. Yeah, I mean, language language is always changing, as you, you just illustrated, and you know these things aren't uh, dictated from on high, but just just a, a, a way of working on their own that uh, linguists could explain to us. I mean, for my part, uh, I've talked. To, in the past on the show, how I'm, I'm, I'm like generally pro cultural appropriation and think that cultural appropriation and cultural mixing are what actually make America great. Um, because you know, all sorts of, you know, new, new things, new things. Can, it's not like an exclusive culture. Like, you know, in, in, in France, they try to like protect the language and they have like an official dictionary or something, or, you know, like a set of names that you can name your children is only from this approved list by the state. Um, mm-hmm. whereas America, it's like this, you know, hodgepodge, melting pot, whatever things, things are always being added to it and new, uh, you know, things are changing and, um, and you know, any like, Anything that didn't come from Native Americans in America is some sort of cultural mix, cultural appropriation, stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is a remix. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, so I, except, I and in language, except for the one word that we all know and hate, um, I would say mm-hmm. that you can't say like this is our word or, or something. Like it's right. just, it just sounds like you know it, it, anyone can anyone can can say can say it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's narrow circumstances where I think uh, this is you know. Uh, not the best thing, but I do think it's a term that's kind of thrown around uh, too loosely um, or often blaming the wrong person. Like, you know, you could say, oh, artist A does X and then artist B does X and artist B is, you know, makes a lot of money when artist A does not. Um, and that will be viewed as appropriation and we will, and then people will blame or be angry with artist B. And maybe like there's a record company or like the, uh, some corporate force that you should be angry with mm-hmm. uh, rather than, you know, I, I something that kind of bugs me. And this is kind of a personal thing because my uncle, uh, Bill Black, was Elvis Presley's bassist. And I will sometimes hear it said, oh, Elvis Presley stole black people's music. And and it, for, and people will say, oh, you know, he stole Hound Dog from uh, Mama uh, – Thornton, when actually Hound Dog was written by two Jews um, uh, in New York, and there was an African American woman who had performed it before Elvis Presley did. Uh-huh. But you know, you look at popular music for the last, you know, going back at least 150 years, and you see uh, white and black musicians 
you know, learning from each other and, and learning song, teaching each other songs. And there's always been this sort of, and, you know, you can listen to, uh, old records from like 19, the 19 teens and not necessarily know if this is supposed to be a, like a, like a hillbilly band or a blues band. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause often they're playing the same songs, the same instruments and, and it's the, the record companies come along, uh, with these categories in like the twenties and thirties where basically if a, if a, if a white band is playing American folk music, they'll call that a hillbilly record or eventually a country record. And if it's a black band playing American folk music, they'll call that a race record Mm -hmm. or eventually blues. And as a way to kind of, so that the, the music is artificially segregated. And so I, you know, I think it, it is overly simplistic to, to, you know, say that like rock and roll belongs to one group of people or anything like that. Um, but I think a more sophisticated structural critique can be made, um, not necessarily singing out particular artists, but the kind of those larger, maybe not as sexy to, to, to talk about, uh, corporate forces. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think, yeah, the, the, um, you know, the, Marxist or materialist or whatever analysis is often not not present in these uh, these kind of fights where it's just like it's, it's pitting like the woke against the unwoke or one one like racial or ethnic group against the other. I don't know. I mean, everything is um, yeah. Every, I mean, there, so everything is a remix. Uh, the Kirby Ferguson had, had the series with that title, and he makes a convincing case. You know, there's no like like. How can you have an, like <laughs> having an original cultural idea is almost impossible, uh, we, we, you know, because we we are aware of uh, so much stuff that existed before us, and so you know the innovation comes from taking something that already existed and then changing it uh, in some way, and you know there's nothing new under the sun, uh, <laughs> as someone famously said, and um, Solomon, <laughs> I think that's right, um, and. Yeah, and maybe that was, you know, maybe someone else has said that before him. Um, okay, so why don't we, uh, do you have anything else you want to add? Oh, actually, there was, we got over now, but there is one thing I wanted to ask you in the, um, sure. uh, in the Tim Allen section, which was like, uh, you know, so in the 90s were like the heyday of family sitcoms. I guess, you know, they existed in the 80s also, obviously, and before that. But it was just for, I guess, demographic reasons or something. There was, it was like family entertainment was was a huge thing. And there were movies that the whole family would go to and they would all have, there would be something for everyone. Um, you're someone with small children. Uh, does this, the, are, like, is this gone in the, in the, I, I guess the, like it, maybe it mostly exists in like animation, like you know, computer animation movies now where there'll, there'll be like, there's fun stuff for the kids, but also there's jokes for the parents. What, what, what is there stuff that you um, consume as a family or? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. So, like, they're still a little bit too young to take the to the theater mm-hmm. or to really, like, um, they won't have much patience for non-animated films, the occasional things. Honestly, weirdly enough, my three-year-old is really into the 90s Power Rangers. So oh, he really? will just watch. <laughs> he'll, he'll watch that uh, uh, if you can... I mean that is live action. Um, uh, it does seem like there's just there's more animated stuff out there is being made today than there used to be, and I wonder if that's something that's different because you know it used to be 
like how many animated movies would even come out a year? You know, you'd have the big Disney movie that would come out every few years. Um, and there would be, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. But I think that kids consume a higher proportion of animated stuff than they used to. Because mm-hmm. um, I think more of it is available. And there's something, I don't know what this is, but there it must have to be something about how the images are caricatured and simpler but there's something that draws kids to animation in a way that live action stuff doesn't um especially little kids so you know they will choose that over the non just like you know if you give a kid sugar then they'll want the thing with the sugar in it rather than not um and so and and the fact that and, and I think something else that is different is having the streaming services because we don't have, um, you know, we don't pay for TV. We don't have network or cable TV, but we have an Apple TV. So we have access to, you know, we have Netflix, we have Amazon Prime. Um, we have that there's a PBS Kids app where that's how we we will watch PBS cartoons will uh-huh. be through this you know streaming app rather than just live PBS and uh, it is kind of disturbing sometimes how that will lend to different kind of viewing habits i'm not the first person to be dismayed by this but you know there there can be kind of an algorithmic you know race to the lowest common denominator and if you're not careful, you can go from watching, you know, like a well-done curriculum-based, you know, uh, a cartoon that's produced by PBS, something that you feel is, you know, pretty good stuff, to just weird YouTube nonsense that that's out there, but is very addictive. Right. Um, and there was that article a couple of years ago about this like algorithmically generated cartoon content yeah. on YouTube that was being marketed to kids um, mm-hmm. to because they would just like hit you know be set on to, to like play the next thing and mm-hmm. the, and the algorithm would capture it and it was it was like nightmarish um, you know spider yeah. spider-man being eaten by an alligator and it, it, it was like no no, no human simulator have been involved in it it was it was made like a turkey or something I think they cut they tried to cut down on that stuff because it was just so weird and uh, off-putting. But even the stuff that isn't as weird as that is still like, you know, there's this kid who uh, like un, you know, like these kids who unwrap Toys. boxes, the unboxing videos, yeah. and those will be addictive as well. And um, uh, the boys have not caught on that our Apple TV has a YouTube app on it. So we're, we're still safe there <laughs> when they when when they visit my grandparents in Memphis, they will be. You know, given Kindles that I have have so far successfully dissuaded them from like giving them for Christmas because I don't want them to have them at our home. Uh-huh. But but there they will sit and watch these YouTube like and I'll, and I'll see other kids like like this who will just be sitting watching these YouTube videos for because and the, you know the interface is so intuitive that they can just click to you know video after video after video. And so yeah, I I suppose that that would discourage from having the, the same kind of a uh, kind of familial viewing experience. Um, I mean, even, you know, often couples don't even necessarily watch things together anymore. You, you know, couples will, you know, 
you know, you know, you have someone will be in bed st- streaming their show on on Netflix, and someone else will be watching whatever YouTube, you know, uh, uh, YouTuber they like, and and uh, th- there's just so much out there. I think it is kind of overwhelming our our brains, and um, I don't know, not not my favorite thing about about the contemporary cultural landscape. <laughs> yeah, guess. yeah. So I guess so. It it seems to mostly be about the you know the change in the technology the information technology and you know yeah. and then but i guess maybe the content um flows from that but it just seemed like when i was a kid I, I watched so much tv as a kid it was crazy but i would come home i would turn on either like nickelodeon or the channel that aired like say by the bell reruns or pbs had like kids programming you know like mm-hmm. three to four and then like basically watch nickelodeon until it's time for dinner and then uh have dinner and then it was like the primetime stuff was coming on and that and that was more like watching as a family because my parents did not want to watch whatever was on Nickelodeon at, fi- at you know 5 p.m. which is like like game shows where lots of kids were yelling and stuff um but I like we we would watch you know the, like we would watch Home Improvement all together and mm-hmm. and that was a thing um and there were just so many shows of that kind of this isn't this isn't like it's not a kid show it's a family show and um I assume they there were jokes I didn't understand in Home Improvement at the time that that my parents got some something out of, um, and that that like for the whole family thing seems to have like like at some point around two thousand like that stopped being a thing that the networks wanted to produce mm-hmm. for for whatever reason. Uh, I guess you know there's still a couple of like the Goldbergs and Fresh Off the Boat. There's still like some family sitcoms, but it, it used to be like a big cultural force, and now it's just um, doesn't. It's, it's much more I about. Think, I think one of the part of it's just people having more TVs, and then maybe they just became aware that people were just not watching the same show together anyway. Right. When there's one big TV in the living room, that's it. Then you need something yeah. something for everybody. Um. That, yeah, that makes sense. So that yes, yeah, so that's another like kind of technological change affecting content. Um, I grew. We had two TVs, and it was a while before I had my own TV. But there was a time where, like my my older brother, like I might. Like he had his his own TV, and so I I think we had a similar sort of I don't know that we we wouldn't watch like Home Improvement together. Honestly, after dinner, my dad was really into these Britcoms that would show on PBS, like Keeping Up Appearances uh-huh. and Are You Being Served, and I would sit would watch with him. One thing is that in my household it was the parents had very different sleep schedules, um, and then my mom would stay up late watching like HGTV, and so I would watch that with her. But and some, I just remember sometimes you'd go and, and oh my older brother would be watching like Beavis and Butthead something I wouldn't be allowed to watch uh-huh. you know he watch MTV um, <laughs> so yeah I think that was the beginning of that kind of fragmenting yeah um, and uh, I actually uh, have an episode that I taped a couple days ago and probably will be up already when this episode airs with the. Uh, uh, New York Times television critic uh, James Ponwazek about his new book, Audience of One, which is a kind of dual biography of Donald Trump and a cultural history of television, mm. um, you know, since 1945, and talking a lot about uh, that conversation as well about how technological changes changed, changed what the content was. Um, okay, why don't we, uh, we've got a bit long, why don't we end it there? Okay, so Bill, you are on Twitter, and what is your Twitter handle? Uh, Twitter handle is William R. Black. So and, keep it simple. and Contingent Magazine, we'll link to below. 
Uh, yeah. This video on Blogging Heads, uh, people can check that out as well. And you're you're one of the editors at that site. I am. Yeah. I mean, if you go to my Twitter, I uh, well, like I, in my bio, I say I'm content. I'm an editor at Contingent Magazine, and the handle is in my bios. Or where it's it's at Contingent underscore Mag. Mm-hmm. Um, so not not hard, not too hard to find. Okay, so people should uh, check that out. Um, I'm on Twitter at a r y h c w. Um, uh, so thank you, Bill. Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.